I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Hi, friends, and welcome to the Management Minute Home Team Podcast, the daily podcast for those outcasts working at home during this global pandemic. This podcast is a service of the MBA program in the John M. Huntsman School of Business at Utah State University. Our goal is to make working at home work for you. My name is Scott Hammond. I'm a professor of management. I teach in the MBA program. I'm also a consultant and an author. Today I'm going to talk a little bit about a story that really changed my life. It was very significant for me. It's not our story, but it could be. In 2016, I went with my sister Shelley Hoffmeyer, who lives with her husband in Oxford, England, and they took me to this beautiful village high on a hill overlooking the Derbyshire Dales. It's just quintessential, beautiful English countryside. With the exception of a few cars and electrical wiring and things like that, it was like stepping back 350 years. Of course, there was a pub, there was a store, there was a church in the center of town. The town was called Eam. It was founded by the Anglo-Saxons in an area that had been inhabited probably for about 13 centuries. But were it not for this village's heroic and tragic history, it would be like a thousand other quaint English villages the town of Eam comes with a sacred story. In 1664 and 1665, Eam was living in isolation. It was an island in a sea of green on this beautiful island of England. The Great Plague of London, the bubonic plague, was ravaging the big cities of England. Towns like Eam were sanctuaries where you could carefully stay uninfected. But in 1665, the village tailor received a bolt of cloth from a shipper in London. A tick was embedded in the cloth, and it came out and it bit the assistant, George Vickers. Within a week, he was dead, but not before he infected a lot of other villagers. In those times, there were no antibiotics. There were few painkillers, and the only way to kill germs on the hands was to wash them in vinegar. That's not a very effective way of killing germs. Still, the villagers also knew that social isolation might keep the village safe and the graveyard. And I immediately felt like this was a sacred place. It was not sacred because of the majestic structure and the grand opulence of many European cathedrals. It was sacred because of its simplicity, its functionality, and its history. When the plague came to ravage Eam, villagers looked for leadership. In Reverend William Montpresson, the Church of England, and Puritan minister Thomas Stanley, these were religious rivals who quickly mended their differences to address this pressing problem. They worked to isolate the village from surrounding parishes so that the infected would not spread to neighboring communities. They advocated self-isolation. They initiated community rules. They asked families to stay within families. They closed the pub. They closed the schools. Families were asked to bury their own dead. 
Church services were held in a natural amphitheater, allowing villagers to separate themselves and reduce risk of infection. But the best-known decision was to quarantine the entire village from other villages to prevent the further spread of disease. Think of it. They turned off the commerce in that village so they could save surrounding villages. Months. The church in Eam recorded 273 individuals as victims of the plague. That's about a third of the village's population. Shelley and I walked through the graveyard and identified the plague victims of all ages, the elderly, the children, the newborns. Then we walked along the street with each of the original plague houses identified with a green historical plaque. We knew that the real history, the real pain, couldn't be described on just a simple plaque. We walked along the cobblestones to the north, to the home of Elizabeth Hancock. Her home had been restored as part of the Plague Village display that is now central to this village's economy. I had to crouch over to enter this small but welcoming door into this house built for smaller people who lived really close together. Elizabeth Hancock was uninfected by the plague, even though she took care of neighbors and friends. Her family had this productive farm, and they shared their abundance. But she paid dearly for her service. Her family became infected, and in one week, she buried all six of her children and her husband. The graves are known as the Riley Graves, after the farm on which they lived. And they are buried just a quarter of a mile outside of Eam on a hill above what is called the Boundary Stone. Now, the Boundary Stone was the place where the villagers could not venture beyond. They couldn't go beyond this stone because it would spread the plague to neighboring communities. It sits today in a grassy field, a simple piece of granite, a monument to humanity. There are no engraved words, no reshaping of the stone just six holes drilled in the rock so that villagers could leave a few bills of vinegar-soaked money while people from neighboring villages would leave food and seeds and clothing and messages of support. This monument to unselfish self-isolation and connection of faith and despair, this simple stone and what it represents was one of the more powerful lessons in my life to see this there moved me deeply. It was also the boundary where the plague stopped, the boundary between the healthy and the dying, the isolated and the connected. The people of Eam almost 350 years ago, before there was a United States, at their own peril, took enlightened actions that prevented the disease from moving into surrounding areas. Shelley and I stood at this boundary stone field looking up at it, and ahead of us there was this middle-aged couple. They approached the stone. They stood in the green field above the little village with their heads bowed in reverence. The woman was wearing a gray drab coat, and she had a scarf on to keep her hair from the drizzling rain. She clutched her purse and reached out and touched the stone. It was like she needed a tactile reminder of this heroic kindness. The man removed his hat, and he stood straight with his head bowed. They were too far away for me to see, but I'm sure there were tears. It's a hard place to be 
without tears. I'm sure that the people of Em in 1666 did not think that their village, their community, would become the monument of kindness and caring that it is today. They did not understand that there are generations in England that exist today because of their unselfish act of isolation. In 1666, they were asking basic questions. Will I have enough food? How can I remain uninfected? Who will die today? Is our leadership right to ask us to isolate? They were trying to live one day at a time, not make history. That is how the best history is made, by those who are not intended to be famous or profound, not by the intentional heroes, but by those who are trying to be practical and simple and unselfish. As we drove down the winding road and connected with the more established motorways back to Nottingham, I wondered what would be my history. This was before COVID-19, before the coronavirus, before social isolation. Ian challenged me to think, could I put my ambitions, my convenience, my career, my life aside for a week or months so that others could have a history, so that my neighbors could live without infection or disease, so that strangers could live and generations unborn could be born. My actions cannot guarantee success, but my inaction surely can cause immeasurable harm. Thank you for listening to the Management Minute podcast. This is a podcast that we've created to support people who are working at home in these difficult times. My name is Scott Hammond. I teach in the MBA program. I love teaching in the online MBA program, and I'd love to encourage you to take a look at that as a possibility for your own education. In these difficult times, the one investment that you can make that is sure to have a good payback is an education. So join us in the MBA program, particularly the online MBA program in the John M. Huntsman School of Business at Utah State University. I'm Scott Hammond. Hope to see you in one of our classes. We'll be right back.